So you can go ahead and turn to John chapter 2 as we're in our series, Jesus Revealed, looking at how Jesus is revealed to the disciples and to us in John chapter 2. And Danny, we have some missing lights, if you can get those on as well. Thanks. Uh, Have you ever heard of, uh, or have you ever had a conversation with someone where you're saying one thing, but they're hearing something totally different? Any of you like that? I remember at a membership class a couple of years ago, uh, we were going to have a potluck before, and then I was going to teach the, the membership part of the class. And so I sent an email out to everyone, and I, and I thought I told them to bring an entree and a side to share with everyone before we had the class portion. And I told them that I would bring a pizza. However, somewhere in my email, it was not very clear because no one brought an entree. And so everyone brought sides, and there I was with one pizza to share for the whole group. And we had, a, we had a large group that day. And let's just say it was the very definition of a light lunch. Now, on a more uh, humorous note, I, I read about an English girl who wanted to go to a school at, at, that was a, a Swiss Christian school. And so she toured the school, and then she went back to England with plans to start in the fall. In the meantime, though, she wrote the schoolmaster asking for more information. And in particular, she said, uh, when I was on your school grounds, I didn't see the WC in the dorms. And in England, the WC means uh, water closet, which is our... In, in American language there, that would be restroom or bathroom. So this English girl just wanted to know where the bathroom was. Where was the WC? But the, the Swiss schoolmaster didn't understand what she was talking about. The English wasn't uh, his first language. And so he took the letter to the school chaplain. And the chaplain looked at it. He wasn't sure, but he was pretty certain that WC must be a reference to the famous West Side Chapel, which was not too far from the school. And so the the schoolmaster writes back to this young lady and and says this. I'm going to read part of the letter. My dear madam, I take great pleasure in informing you that the WC is situated nine miles from the house in the center of a beautiful grove of pine trees surrounded by lovely grounds. It's capable of holding 229 people, and it's open on Sundays and Thursdays only. And there are a great number of people expected during the summer months. And I suggest that you come early, although there is usually plenty of standing room. And it may be of some interest to you to know that my daughter was married in the WC, And it was there that she met her husband. I can remember the rush there was for seats. There were ten people to every seat, usually occupied by one. And it was wonderful to see the expressions on their faces. You will be glad to hear that a good number of people bring their lunch and make a day of it. While those who cannot afford to go by car arrive just on time. Uh, I would especially recommend that you go on Thursday when there's a piano accompaniment (laughs) 
and the acoustics are excellent, and even the most delicate sounds are heard everywhere. The newest addition is a bell donated by a wealthy resident of the district, and it rings every time a person enters. She meant something totally different than what he heard. And in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus say one thing, and all the others think he's saying something totally different. And in that confusion, the religious leaders are going to totally miss what Jesus is saying here. And what he's saying is very important. And so I want to encourage every one of us to pay close attention to what Jesus is getting at in this passage. Because I don't want you to fall into the same mistake that the religious leaders fell into. Listen, 2,000 years later, far too many people hear Jesus say something, but think that he's saying something totally different. And so let's go ahead and let's turn to, to John chapter 2. And our passage is going to be starting in verse 18. Uh, but for context, I'm going to be starting to read in verse 13. Now hopefully you all haven't gotten too situated because we don't normally do this, but there are some traditions where people stand for the reading of the main passage. And so just to mix things up today and to tip our hat to those that come for that, from that tradition, I'm going to ask everyone to go ahead and to stand for the reading of God's word today. So everyone, if you can stand, please, and let me read this. John 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, he, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. And when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And this is the word of God to us. You may be seated. So as we saw last week, it was Passover. Passover was a very busy time in the temple. People from all over would travel to make it into Jerusalem to to go to the temple. 
I read this week that there were various estimates on how many people visited the temple at that time in, in first century AD. And on the low end, it was 100 to 250,000 people were there. On the high end, some people were estimating upwards of 2.25 million people. Now, that's a lot, but really, either way, that's a lot of people. Even if it was just 100,000 people there in Jerusalem. And Jesus steps into this scene, and he sees all the people selling the animals and changing the money. And as they're doing this, he sees what they're doing, particularly as we talked about last week, in the non-Jewish area, in the, in the court of the Gentiles. So they're corrupting this area. And so then Jesus makes the whip of cords and he begins driving people out, chasing people out of the temple, chasing people out and saying, don't make my father's house a house of trade. And we looked at that part last week, starting in verse 18, some of the Jews ask him saying, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, like, yo, what gives you the right to do this? So, so what authority, they're asking, what authority did Jesus have to drive people out of the temple? And this is a, an important question to ask that we will get to. But really, I, would, I want to propose to you that this is the wrong question to start with. They're focusing on a how dare he, when what they should be focusing on is how dare I. And so in other words, they totally looked past all that was happening in the temple and the selling of things of what they were doing, and they see this man driving people out. And they're overlooking their own sin. See, the, the very act of preparing for Passover involved a period of cleansing uh, personally and in their, in their house. And so during Passover or before Passover, they would go through their house and they would take out all the yeast, all the leaven from the house because the yeast represented sin. So the, the point was not the yeast. The point was that it was a picture of preparing their hearts to get sin out of their life as they prepared to go and to participate in Passover. So isn't it ironic here? that they were supposed to be preparing their hearts and their houses for Passover, but they totally overlooked the blatant sin of corrupting the temple. And these particular Jews were good at being religious, but they were ignoring sin. I want to ask, what about you? What about you? Are you good at focusing on other people's sins while maybe ignoring your own? Are you more religious than obedient? So I want to encourage you, don't fall into the trap that these leaders fell into. Now back to our passage. They asked Jesus to show them a sign, meaning they're asking him, what authority does he have for doing this? And this is what Jesus says. Destroy this temple... And in three days, I will raise it up. And this is where the Jews totally miss what Jesus is saying here. They think he's talking about this physical structure that was around them when he's obviously talking about his body. 
And so they respond to Jesus saying, oh, Jesus, come on. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And we're going to raise it up in three days. They don't get it. The temple that they were at was not the original temple that Solomon had built. So Solomon had built this beautiful temple back about a thousand years before that in 950 B.C. And when Solomon built it, it only took him seven years to build, but that was because he had 180,000 people working on the temple. Now that temple lasted for about 400 years until the Babylonians destroyed it when they conquered the southern kingdom around 586 B.C. So after the Babylonians fell about 50 years after that, some of the Jewish exiles were allowed to return to Jerusalem. And when they returned, they began rebuilding the temple. And so when they began rebuilding it, it took them about 20 years. But when they completed it, it was not anywhere nice, anywhere as nice as the first one. But they they had a temple. So then fast forward several hundred more years, in around 20 B.C., Herod the Great began this extensive renovation of the temple. And this renovation would take them 80 years to complete, uh, and, and they would finally finish in AD 60, which would be about 30 years after the events that we're looking at today in our passage. Sadly, though, 10 years later, after 80 years of work, 10 years later, the temple would be destroyed by the Romans during the first Jewish revolt. So Jesus is talking to them during this period, about 46 years into the renovation project. And so the Jews knew a thing or two about temples being destroyed and about rebuilding temples. And so they clearly knew that temples don't get rebuilt in three days. And they obviously didn't understand what Jesus was talking about. And because of that, They didn't understand or refused to understand the authority that Jesus had and was speaking from. But this leads to an important question. Why did Jesus call himself the temple? Why did he call himself the temple? So this is important to answer because the answer to that will also answer why Jesus had the authority to drive people out. But the answer to that will also help us have a better understanding of Jesus' authority and how it impacts our own life. So this is an important question. And verses 21 and 22 start to give us a little bit of a hint. So let's read this. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture in the word that Jesus had spoken. So these two verses shed a little light into the thinking of Jesus. Jesus is saying that he is the temple. But if you were here last week, I was talking about how we are the temple of God. So if that's the case, how is Jesus the temple? And how are we the temple also? And so to to answer this, I want to take a step back and just talk about for a moment the idea of the temple. 
And this might seem like a small tangent, but I promise you it's going to help us better understand what Jesus is getting at here. So the temple is where God lives and rules. So an earthly temple is simply where God lives and rules among his people. And if we think about it, and if we think about it this way, there was a temple long before there was a building. And so let's go all the way back to Genesis 1. And Genesis 1 tells us about the world being created in seven days. And it's created through God speaking over a period of seven days. And then on the seventh day, God went and he dwelled with Adam and Eve as he ruled the world. So fast forward to when the tabernacle was being built. The tabernacle was just a a portable temple that the Israelites used when they were in the desert. And so uh, later on, a temple would be built in the more permanent location. But the idea of the tabernacle and temple, they're, they're both the same. It's just one moves. And when the tabernacle was being built, it was dedicated with a series of seven speeches over seven days. And then God came and he dwelled among his people, just like in the Garden of Eden. But up to this point, each time that God dwelled among his people, his people rejected him. And so Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. The Israelites, time and time again, chose to rebel against God as well. And since they rebelled against God, was there any hope for people? And that's where Jesus comes in. And so Jesus came, and he dwelled among his people. And he was both God and the one that Hebrews tells us that shined the glory of God the Father to the world. And so Jesus was the temple because he lived among his people and he brought the presence of God to them. But what happened after that? They, the people rebelled against Jesus. They crucified him. They crucified the temple to the cross. However, what man meant for evil, Jesus meant for good. And by dying on the cross... Jesus turned himself into the ultimate temple sacrifice. And so as predicted in John 2, he resurrected from the dead three days later. And after that, he ascended into heaven. And then at Pentecost, he moved, his spirit moved into each person that follows him. And so now we are his temple because God dwells in us. And one day, When Jesus returns, he will bring all his people to be with him in his presence. And at that time, we won't need a temple building because just like Adam and Eve, he will dwell among his people. And that's why Jesus has authority to clear the temple because he is the temple and he made all things. So let's think about it this way. If I were to go and to start mowing my lawn, which, by the way, doesn't happen nearly as much as it should. But if I were to start mowing my lawn, it would be pretty strange if someone stopped by and said, hey, what are you doing? What do you think you're doing? And I'd be like, what do you mean? I'm mowing. And the person would say, what gives you the right 
to mow this lawn? And I would say, I do. It's my lawn. And so I give myself the right to mow it. And likewise, the temple was Jesus' temple. And so all, of all people, he had the right to clear out the money changers from it. And so I want to start to ask an important question here. So what? So what? What does all of this talk about the temple and authority have to do with us? How does it impact our lives? And so I want to give you a couple of reasons why. First of all, all of the earth is his temple. So as I've already said in Genesis 1, it talks about how all of creation is built by God, is created by God, and is therefore his temple. So it was originally his dwelling place with man. And so if he created it, and it is his, then who has authority over it? That'd be God. This world is ultimately not ours, but God's. And we're just using it for a short time while we're here on this earth. But not only is the earth his temple, but we are his temple. So every person that follows Jesus is a little temple of God moving about, doing his work. 1 Peter 2.5, Peter says, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That house word, that house is, really just means dwelling, as a dwelling, to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Does that sound like a temple to you? So listen, we're not just a temple of God, though. We are His temple. So He created us. He lives in us. And He is in charge of our lives. And because we are His temple, He has authority over us. But not only that, every one of us should surrender to Him every part of our life. So who should be the one who rules our life? Who should be the one that we look to for guidance? Who should be the one that determines what is right and what is wrong? And if you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you to do it now. Because if you, and, and if you're holding something back, I want to encourage you to give your life to him because he's the one that guides and directs and leads. And he's the one with the ultimate authority. So giving your life to anything else or anyone else is just a waste of your life. But listen, it's not just about we need to give him authority and that's that. There's benefits to giving him authority. Since he has authority over our life, we can put our hope in him during difficult times. Meaning that we don't have to do this on our own. When I was pretty young, maybe six or seven years old, I was playing out in the neighborhood. And one of the guys that I was playing with, he was a little bit older than, with, uh, older than me, and I was showing him my new toy 
that I had been given. And I don't remember exactly what it was, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it was some kind of like Transformers figure or something. That was big back in the 80s. But he took it from me and he wouldn't give it back. And he was bigger than me and, and I had no way to force him to give it to me. And so finally, I went home in despair because I had lost my toy. And my parents weren't around because, it, it, again, it was the 1980s. But my older brother was there. And I told him about my problem. And he marched me over to the guy's house to, who took the toy. And he knocked on the door, and the guy answered the door. And his parents weren't around either because it was the 1980s. But my brother, who towered over this guy, demanded that he give the toy back. And that guy complied. I didn't have to fight. I didn't have to fret. I simply gave my problem over to my big brother. And church, if you have given your life to Jesus, then your problems are his problems. So your financial problems that you're having right now, those aren't just your problems. Those are his problems too. Those health problems that you're going through right now, those aren't just your problems. They're his problems too. The addiction that you're struggling with and, and don't know how to deal with, those are his to deal with too. You see, it can be very freeing to give your life over to someone greater than you. And there is no one greater to give your life to than Jesus Christ. Because he has the authority. And so I want to close with a story uh, about uh, John Bunyan, who, who wrote the book uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan was a pastor in the 1600s, and during that time it was not very safe to be a pastor. And so even though he was a Christian, he struggled with all sorts of difficulty. So he was in prison for being a pastor. And while he was in prison, he began writing a number of books. And one of the books he wrote was Pilgrim's Progress, which for many, many years, for generations, was the most popular English book other than the Bible. And so because of all the difficulties he went through, uh, and he, he struggled with doubt. He put some of those struggles in his main character. And so the main character in Pilgrim's Progress, his name is Christian. And in the story, Christian and one of his traveling companions, the traveling companion's name is Hopeful, they're captured by the giant despair. And they're taken to the castle called Doubting Castle. And they're thrown into a dungeon cell. And Christian and his companions are beaten mercilessly by the giant despair. And one morning, they're taken out of the cell and they're shown the bones of other pilgrims in the castle yard who never escaped the doubting castle. And so Christian and Hopeful, though, did not give up. They refused to give up. And one night, Christian remembers a way to escape. And he's able to, in the night, unlock the cell door and unlock the outer gate, and then they go and they run for their life. And these pilgrims escaped the Doubting Castle, 
in the giant despair, not by force, not by determination, but by what's called the key that they called promise. Promise. And this isn't a sermon on the promises of God. This is a sermon on the authority of Jesus Christ. But when you rest on his promises, what you're doing is you're resting on his authority. And we've seen, as we've seen, we can rest assured that he has the authority and the power to do what he says he will do. And so I want to encourage you, just like Christian and just like Hopeful realized, I want to encourage you to rest in his promises, to rest in his authority. So give him your life. Submit to his authority. And put your hope in his authority to do what he says he will do. And when you do that, you will have a Savior who can manage what you cannot. So I encourage you, give your life to him today. Let's go ahead and spend a moment now in prayer, and then we'll...